what I call the tipping point, where then you say, okay, well, let's try 20,000 a month when you've got the money. And if you get, you know, 20 cases, then it's great. Well, let's try 30,000, you get 30 cases. Increase your marketing spend, reach that tipping point, and watch your firm skyrocket. Then we bought like a six month contract. And I said, well, you know what? We're gonna go out in a blaze of glory. I took the four months remaining and I said, do it all in one month. Just, let's just rip the bandit off. Welcome to Personal Injury Mastermind. I'm your host, Chris Dreyer, founder and CEO of Rankings.io, the preeminent personal injury marketing agency. Before we get started, if you like what you hear, head on over to Apple or Spotify and pound that five-star review button. And if you don't like what you hear, tell me about it in a one-star review. I got a big hug for all my haters too. Each week, we talk to the best in the legal industry. Ready to dominate your market? Let's go. The Ward Law Group is one of the biggest personal injury firms in South Florida. Founder Greg Ward and his team tackle an incredible 400 plus cases per month, but the firm looked very different when he and his wife opened over a decade ago. Let's start with what they didn't have. They did not have a 100 plus person staff, market domination on the radio, or a healthy war chest. Guys, they didn't have any of that. Like many attorneys starting a new firm, they had no clients and no marketing budget. What they did have was a mountain of debt and a ton of grit and even more determination. Greg and his wife are fighters. Against the odds, they took big risks, putting their community first, they came out on top. Today, Greg gets tactical. He dives deep into media buying, organic firm growth, and stacking the war chest. I can't wait for all of you to hear what he has to share. Get ready to take those notes and buckle up. Here's Greg Ward, founder at The Ward Law Group. I actually didn't want to be a lawyer. I, I grew up in a kind of a lower middle class, upper lower class family in, in, uh, in the suburbs of Baltimore. Unfortunately, my younger sister was a heroin addict. The truth is, growing up, I had a lot of trouble dealing with, with bullies. My sister fell into drug culture at a young age. And there were times when we have to go and try and find her. And, you know, you're driving down through Baltimore. It was a tough time in my life. That kind of gave me the fight. And you're growing up with that, you know, you do struggle a lot. And that struggle is kind of what makes you, I think, really good at being a PI lawyer. Because I don't bring a lot of judgment into the PI realm. When I say judgment, meaning like I don't judge people. Like I know there are good people who may be in bad situations. Or there are, you know, people who through no fault of their own have gotten, you know, uh, been a victim of an accident or something like that. And, and they may not live the same lifestyle I live. And so I try not to judge that because fortunately, thank God I went up. My sister unfortunately went down, but we came from the same house. We had the same parents. We had the same everything. Just, you know, she got into drugs and I didn't. So not that I'm saying I'm, you know, my clients are, or have drug problems or anything, but what I'm trying to say is, is that, you know, you have to come in and kind of suspend your idea about the way people should be when you're addressing your clients. You've got to treat them as a human being first. And so growing up in that environment, that did help me to kind of just say, you know, you take people where you find them. You know, we represent a lot of immigrants and we're in Miami, Florida. And my wife is a Cuban immigrant. Uh, she came here when she was 14. So, you know, a lot of us bring into our practices kind of where the way we think people should be. But the truth is you take people where you find them. And so growing up like that with the struggle, one, you learn to stand up for yourself and stand up for your clients. And more importantly, two, is, you know, you just learn to take your client, find their story where they're at, you know, and, and really just be open to them and treat them like human beings because they may not have had the same opportunities that all of us have had. And I'm grateful to have the opportunities I have, but I know a lot of people didn't have those same chances. So 
you found your path, right? You went and had a legal career. And then in 2012, you founded Ward Law Group with your partner and, and wife, Hani. So, so take me to that time. Why did you start the firm? Where, why was it the right timing? Tell me about that experience. We did celebrate our 10th anniversary as a firm. And when we founded the firm, I had had a bad spell. So my sister, who had the drug addiction problem, she had passed away from leukemia. And a year after that, my father had been diagnosed with a terminal leukemia as well, and he passed away. And my firm that I was with, some other partners with, was I wasn't a good partner at that time, obviously. My marriage had fallen apart. I was married before my wife, Hani. That had fallen apart, and uh, just a lot of bad stuff had happened. And so when I started the firm, I was sleeping on a couch, right? This is the truth. And my wife and I went back and at our first 10th anniversary, we did a video and we tallied. We, we started the firm with, we had $10,000 in cash, $465,000 in debt. And I had basically walked out of the firm that I had started and said, you know what? Uh, I just, I got to be me and I got to do what I'm doing. And I want to do plaintiff's work. And I really wanted to do that. And I was doing mostly defense work at the time. And then I had, and I'll, I'll be very candid about this. I had a spiritual conversion at the same time. I met my wife. She took me to church about five months into our relationship, and I had a very significant experience my first time I went to church, and it changed my life. And at that point, I started praying about it, and I felt like I got really clear guidance that I should start my own firm. And in that really difficult place of you know recently divorced, tons of debt, $10,000 cash, I said, hey, let's, let's start a firm. And my wife, she just graduated from law school. I said, and I can't afford to pay you anything. I can only give you gas money, but if you come and work with me, I think we can do something amazing. And she either had incredibly bad judgment or the same spiritual strength that I had because she decided to take that really crummy job and start the firm with me. But it started out, it was hard. I took my commercial litigation clients with me and that was good for a period of time. But you know, she started doing the PI and she was the one who had the passion really to get that going. And she started doing it and it just blew up after that. So it took us about a year, year and a half to get running and it just it exploded after that. I thank you for sharing all that and being transparent. And we see where people end up and how successful your firm is. And you don't know the adversity and challenges you have in getting there. You know, in the, in the very beginning, you didn't have the the capital, I assume, to just go out and buy the top, you know, placement for TV and saturate the market or, or do a big digital ad spin. So let's talk about how your marketing in terms of the biz dev side evolved. What were what was the strategy initially and how has it evolved to kind of currently what, what you're doing now? It took a lot of prayer, right? So, I mean, I, I'm not saying that tongue in cheek. I mean it sincerely. Like we were just like, God, we do not know what to do. Help us out here. Show us. And God has always been faithful to us. My wife and I are both Christians, and you know we believe that the whole purpose of our lives is to serve other people. So we started off there. And it's interesting because you know if you get to know my wife and myself, my wife has a lot of energy. She has a great story. She walked across the border at 14 with a backpack and her mom and a little one-year-old brother. She was put in foster care. Her mom went to jail. And even though she was Cuban and they got asylum, presumptively, they still had the processing thing. And so she's like, you know, I really want to serve people because she knew how scary that situation was. So she had this passion for helping her people. When we aligned, I really think God put us together. I'm the systems processes manager, like corporate guy. And I had trial experience. My wife really had no experience, but she knew she wanted to help people and she had a great story. And so how we actually started and there's a God story behind this too, because I remember we, you know, we gave some money to a church and we prayed. I call it planting a seed. 
And, uh, and basically what happened is we got a, a good settlement on a case I'd taken with me. And then we just decided to try a, an advertising contract on a local radio station. And everybody told us radio doesn't work. But I was like, well, let's give it a try. And it didn't work for two months. And I, and I said, and we bought like a six month contract. And I said, well, you know what? We're going to go out in a blaze of glory. I took the four months remaining and I said, do it all in one month. Just let's just rip the bandit off. It's going to work or not work. We hadn't got any calls. And sure enough, we, we quadrupled that ad and, uh, and we got a call and, you know, we, okay, we'll do the case. I send the demand letter and we get a, a tender back for $50,000. And I'm thinking, holy moly, are you kidding me? And I'm because I'm doing billable work at this point, and it, and nobody wants to pay billable work. They're all like, you know, every every invoice nickel and dime, and I had clients stolen from me by price competition, all this stuff. And I get a check, and I'm like, I just had to send a letter. Are you kidding me? This is easy. And I said, let's take all that money, put it back in another advertising contract, and we did it. And then and we started small. I mean, it was like there was like one case, and then two, then three, then five, then ten, then. 20, then 30, then 50, and we're hitting other radio stations now. And then we started going all Spanish. And then we started going TV, a little bit, t- you know, more TV, more TV. And so we scaled up. So we started off there, and now we're well over 400 cases a month and hundreds of employees now. Um, but it started small, and we focused on who we were and just told that story on a very small radio station. But we tested it and made sure that it was working. And as soon as I knew it worked, I said that. And by the way, that four-month budget became my one-month budget because I said, okay, I'm going to get one case, so I'm going to spend these four months. And then, so a point for the young lawyers, I believe there's something called what I call the tipping point where if you don't buy a big enough advertising contract, you will not reach a certain saturation and you will not get calls at all. But you cross the tipping point, you know, and it may just be another 20 or 30%, but you cross the tipping point, then you're actually at critical mass. You can get cases. Then you, then you run that up to a marginal return number, right? So you take it, and I'm using some concepts here, but basically let's say you're spending $10,000 and that's your tipping point. You start getting cases. Enough to, you need to get, you know, people say 10 to 15% cost per case. Then you say, okay, well, let's try 20,000 a month when you've got the money. And if you get, you know, 20 cases, then it's great. Well, let's try 30,000 a month. You get 30 cases. Then you try 40,000 a month and you get 32 cases. And you're like, okay, I've, I've reached the point where I can't. And there's some seasons and there's some timing and other things. Another little pointer out there for all of you young lawyers, you know, the media, the ads, the TV stations and radios, they are vultures. Ben Glass says this, they're vultures and they are, they will give you their crummiest spots. So you've got to make sure you're tracking when your spots are airing, you know, what works for you for your calls. So, I mean, you got to pay attention to this. Now I do that. So that was my natural thing. I'm like, you got to test everything. And then the, and even the address, we're like, you can't track this stuff. Be like, if I can't track it, I'm not going to do it. And so you got to be firm about that, you guys out there. You know, you got to be like, no, I'm going to track it. I'm only going to air one spot um, to, to see if I get a call. Oh, by the way, a way you could do this, a testing way, is that you can do a giveaway. Call radio station, say, hey, I want to give away 500 bucks. You know, you're paying 500 bucks for the spot, so might as well give another 500 bucks. And if you get phone calls, you know they're listening and they're responding to that radio station, right? So another little trick, by the way, you want to talk about ad tricks. Like there are some people like they've got a million followers on Instagram or they've got, you know, the highest rated TV station, right? But their followers aren't engaged. They're just background noise. Whereas you've got some guys who are like local talent, that's huge engagement. And, you know, so they could be, you know, one tenth the size of the biggest TV station, but may have an avid followership. And so this is with like Instagram influencers and other people, if you want to start working with some of them, 
some of them, the, you have two guys who both have 100,000 followers. One has 100,000 followers where they don't buy anything. The other one has 100,000 followers where you got 10,000 people who live and die by everything they say. It's not the same. You got to figure out a way to, to find that out. And so we test for that. And that's just my evolution of things. You got to be intentional about it. Never listen to the ad reps because they'll sell you their garbage for premium. And be like, I don't know why it's not working. <laughs> you gave right. me the lowest right. rated show and the, you know, they have, nobody likes the guy. And, you know, they're like, if he recommends you. Here's the inventory we have. Exactly. Exactly. So you got to be intentional about that. And then sometimes they don't even play it in those slots too. You know? Right. Right. There's... Geez, I have so many follow-up questions here. Uh, <laughs> so many follow-up questions. First of all, that was super tactical. I hope everyone maybe even does a little 30 seconds and replays that, that what you just stated again because there's so much power in what you said. I want to key in and ask your, your point of view on a few things. First of all, we just had Gary Sarner on. Uh, you know, he does a ton of radio. A lot of times when we're talking about branding, it's measured in CPMs, you know, cost per thousand impressions. How does that stack up? Like, what what's... What's the CPMs look like in radio? What's the CPMs look like in TV? Because I've seen the OTT, the, you know, the new thing, and those CPMs are crazy expensive, but I know that TV and radio has been around forever, but it just seems like still, even today, it's a solid investment. Uh, I mean, we, we work with TV and radio. We like that. We get a lot of referrals now from former clients, and we've got some other things. We're doing the, the online stuff, which I think is obviously the future. Everyone, No one's disputing that. Yes, of course. This was before OTT, there was Pandora, <laughs> you know, and let me tell you how much money I lost on that. I go to the conferences too, and I hear what they're saying. I can tell you what's going to work. You've got a vendor who's trying to sell you something that they're going to justify for you why it makes sense. I'm the guy in the trenches who's saying, yeah, that's going to work or it's not going to work or test it. Just test it, right? I, if somebody says you're going to need six months to get results, that's a dangerous thing. I'm not saying it's wrong. Right. There have been some TV stations that's taken us six months to get results, you know, but you got to have the budget to be able to deal with that. And don't, you know, the other big mistake I see people making, don't jump in the deep end too fast. Okay. Cause this is a thing you can blow. Like I see this happens all the time. People always try and take our market share. Like we have an incredible war chest right now. And if I see there's a real threat, I'm going to just saturate it. And no one can come on and take over any of our media. And I also have exclusive relationships with a lot of the media we're doing now. And we pay a little bit more than that because we protect our space. But be careful because somebody will get a hit. They'll settle a case for, let's say, they get a $100,000 fee. They're like, we're going to put all this into TV. Well, be careful. Like, start small. Like, everybody wants to come and be the big guy all of a sudden. So be careful jumping in the deep end. And I'll, I'll tell you the other thing. We had a, a $100 plus million dollar settlement recently. But I'll be honest with you. If I got in that case when I was a fifth or even a tenth year lawyer, I could not have handled it. Right? And so some of you guys will get this big case and you'll be like, oh, I'm, I'm going to kill it. And there were big lawyers out there who were saying we should settle the case for significantly less than that. And I'm like, no, we've got a war chest. I, I brought in another law firm as well. We got a war chest. We're ready to go. We'll take the case if we go to trial, if we have to go there, you know. But I see young lawyers sometimes they try and get ahead of themselves or our egos get in the way and we make mistakes. So don't overextend yourself on that. And, and especially with advertising contracts, because you see you like, oh, if I just do what Greg is doing, I'm going to get the same results. Well, we've been doing it for over 10 years now. But more importantly, like we're extremely tactical about what we're doing. And I mean, I, I just recently cut a TV station because they weren't cutting it. And, you know, I had to make the decision that someone else is going to come in there and saturate that market. But I have to be 100% sure that that's not going to work out. But you've got to be intentional with what you're doing. So just like build your structure slow and steady. I swear to you, if you take your time and you do it right and know what your message is and know who your client is and know what your core values are and know what you stand for, you know, take the time because... Now I'm looking back 10 years and we're, you know, we have 135 employees now. 
Um, it took 10 years, but like, that seems like this, I swear to you, it was like overnight, but you know, there was a time when it was 10 people, but you got to learn how to handle 20 people and 30 people and all that stuff. So what I'm trying to say is, is like, there's a lot of noise around advertising. There's a lot of noise around marketing. The truth is what clients are looking for is authenticity. They're looking for your story. They're looking for who you are as a human being. You got to be consistent with your story and you've got to be, you know, your messaging. You talk about branding. I mean, I'm a Christian. God has put me on this earth to serve my clients. I promise my clients they're the most important people in my life, you know, and, and I've had a lot of great results because of that. So ignore the noise, you know, and they talk about these things. OTT, they're going to, the number is going to have to come down. Like it's ridiculous what they're charging for that stuff. And I just, I did, I did the first thing of that Pandora when there's nobody else on it. And I'm like, oh, you're the only guy here. Yeah, well, there's a reason for that. And, uh, and I didn't get a single client. I spent thousands and thousands and thousands and thousands of dollars, you know, and, and it kills me. And that was, you know, eight years ago, I guess, when it was hot to do that. So, you know, just have some perspective and don't run and do what the crowd is doing, you know, kind of find your niche. Greg's firm is on fire. They are hiring left and right to keep up with the influx of clients. So what does it actually take to run a firm with over 100 employees? Greg breaks it all down. He explains what milestones require specific hires and how to identify breaking points. There are certain break points in the evolution of a business. It's like a certain amount of revenue and a certain number of employees, you know, 10 employees, 20, 50, 100, and 250. Like, I forget exactly where the breakdowns are, but I'll tell you that a 15 person firm is radically different than a 50 person firm is radically different than a hundred person firm is radically different than a 200 person firm. And we're at 135 now. So we're kind of jumping that chasm again. And there are certain places where people get stuck. You get stuck in revenue, you get stuck in headcount. You know, when do you need HR? Like I, I have HR people, but my HR role is evolving as well. I am looking for specifically right now, what they call an HR leadership role which would be a person in the way I run my firm is I have, you know, my managers, there are about 10 managers of different departments. I'm looking for an HR person who will be co-equal with every other manager and will actually develop the career path for everyone in my organization and make sure their training is being done appropriately and including career paths for my senior managers. So they have a career path. And one of the challenges you have at my size is people are like, oh, growth, growth, growth. I'm like, you know, if you don't have a career path, you know, growth, I mean, I can pay you more. Most people mean, say growth, they mean higher money, more money, but I need you to do more productivity. And there's only so much you can do as a paralegal, then you have to get into leadership and, and that sort of thing. So, so there are certain key hires. At 10, you need an office manager. Probably should have an assistant too. 20 to 30, you're going to probably need a controller CFO, you know, to manage that stuff. 50, you're probably looking at a separate HR person at that level about 50 to 75, we had, and we started hiring, we had a marketing manager, we've got a production manager, we've got, you know, and the production's got intake and other things on it. So we have this, these structures. Our process or our, our organization grew organically. Um, but I can just tell you some milestones. At 10, we hired an office manager. And I know it was hard to keep track of everybody at 50, you know, and we do a lot of culture building work with a lot of team building work. And it still is hard for me to keep track of everybody um, on the teams. By the way, another little point, you know, if you get a big, like, let's say over 50, the people who are reporting your managers, they are not following you. They're following their manager. Very important for you to understand this. I am a leader of leaders now, right? The people who are my managers, I make sure they understand my culture. They understand my ideas. 
they could replicate me if something were to happen to me, God forbid, I think my managers could figure out what decision I would make in any particular situation. They then inspire their people to follow them, you know, and I have to be okay with that, that it's not my person, it's Amalia's person, or it's not my person, it's Giselle's person. And you got to be okay with that because you can't have the same impact on everybody. But I make sure every day I meet with my managers every morning for a huddle for 15 minutes, talking about the issues, making sure we understand we're all on the same page. Finding those A players and getting them in places is essential for the growth of any firm, and D players have to go. When it comes to firing, Greg takes his lead from Jonah Hill. So we're trial lawyers. We're very empathic. We want people to do their best. It's very hard for us to fire people. I just encourage everybody to go watch Moneyball. You know, Brad Pitt, Jonah Hill. See how Jonah Hill is forced to fire these professional athletes? That's my firing speech right there. It is it. You sit with your back to the door of a conference room. You know, you bring the person in. Sorry, it's not working out. Here's the severance. You get your phone. Da, da, da. I appreciate it. You need a letter of reference. I'll give it to you. And then I get up and I walk out. Because it's like, I swear to you, if you do anything more than that, it's going to be a, a waterworks fest or a fight. You know, watch Jonah Hill Moneyball. Great movie. I have all my managers watch it. That's how you should fire people. But more authoritative than Jonah Hill was because he was very tentative. I have found during growth, even for my own agency, is calculating capacity, right? You can track hours. Yeah. We had Mike Morson was talking about how his different pod teams, you know, some case managers, they, you know, some teams could take 60 cases. Another one could take 90. So how are you forecasting it when you know it's time to hire? When you are thinking about forecasting, just track past performance, right? And then before you roll anything out, because we're big fans of KPIs, before you roll anything out, ask your team members, what do you think you can handle, right? Many times they will give you more than what you're gonna assign to them. But where I mess this up is, and I was telling the story today, I went back and I looked over six months and every case manager was doing, you know, let's say 20 demands a month. So well, that's gonna be the new KPI, 20 demands a month. It was met with such rebellion. And I said, Guys, we're doing 20 demands a month. We can't do it. We can't do it. And so I did. I, I was stupid because I didn't ask them their input. Shame on me. And had I gotten their input, they may have said 25, right? And at least they came up with a number. And then you monitor that if they can realistically do that or not. But I had visited upon them and I got a lot of resistance, you know? And so I just, I'm never going to do that again. I always will have the, the team members involved in the setting what the goals are now. To answer your question, yeah, Mike is right. There are people. Some guys are here and some guys are here. And you know what I do with the guys who are here? I pay them a lot of money. And the guys that are here, I try and coach them. If they have my heart, like if they have, if they share your core values, you know, you want to try and coach that person up because it's hard to find people who share your heart. You know, you want to try and train them, give them the tools they need to at least be a B player. If they're a high performer and they don't share your values, you got to have a plan to get rid of them. And if they're Low performers that don't share your core values, just just get rid of them. That's that's an easy, you know, you let them go immediately. Um, and so that's kind of a general framework of, you know, hiring and firing processes. Those high performers that don't share the values can be toxic and, and leads, lends itself to all kinds of issues. And then the other thing I like is, you know, doubling down, like you said, is like, hey, your top performers, I'm going to spend my time there and rewarding them. And because and you give the training and support as much as you can to the lower squad, but you're going to get more out of your top performers. Uh, let me give you another nugget here too, because this is another thing you just hit on that made me think of something. A lot of times people will say, okay, 
they, they you know, you have a meritocracy, right? And they say, oh, Greg's playing favorites. Well, you know, I see the data, so I know that the people are higher performers. Here's a very dangerous situation to be in, by the way. And that is you have somebody who is maybe a good performer, but then you want to move them into leadership, but they're not quite there. And, and then you move them into leadership prematurely. Well, first of all, you can never take them out of leadership. And then secondly, if they fail in that position as leader, you're going to lose that person. You know, they're just never, they're not going to be happy. And so you've got to be very careful about that. And then other people will witness that and they'll say, well, you know, all I need is the title of manager and I can improve productivity. And the other nugget I will share with you is a title will never, ever give somebody the authority to drive results in your organization. It just doesn't work. You can know who your leaders are by seeing who's one, getting great results and two, motivating other people, helping them out. You know, those are your leaders. You know, I, every time I've given somebody a title and they say, I need a title to do the job, this was early on, bad idea because it just doesn't work. And they, the title never, never gives any magical power. It's whether they have it in them or not. Now, you may need to train them how to be leaders, but these are just some big mistakes I made early on that I'm trying to keep other people from making. You got that paralegal, you're like, maybe I should put them in charge of the other paralegals and you're not sure. Man, go with your gut. Like, don't do it. Because once you put them in charge, you can never demote them. And then you're stuck with whatever that is. Make sure you're sure about that. You want to give individuals these opportunities. You talked about career pathing with the HR leader, and you'd never want to put a ceiling on them where they feel restricted. But then, like you said, it's like, you know, sometimes they're just not ready and you can't take them down and demote them. So how do you have those conversations? I give them special projects. This is a limited time. Like anytime I'm unsure about something, I'll say, hey, listen, we need this to be done for the next three months, right? It's limited in scope. Let's see how this works. And I tell people, look, there will be opportunities to do special projects in the organization. And those are things that will help you enter into a leadership role. But sometimes the special projects suck, you know, and we need somebody to do them and just get it done. Because by the way, you know, if you're doing something that I don't have to do that I don't want to do, that's a big plus for me, right? That's more valuable to the boss than say, you know, if you do something I can easily do, it's not such a value. But if you're doing something, taking off my plate, oh man, thank you. Right. And so we have special projects and, you know, and temporary assignments and say, I want you to take this team of people. You'll be the pod leader for the next three months, you know, and put an end date on it. And then, cause you can always make it permanent after that. You say, Hey, you know what's really worked out. I think we're ready to, to make this permanent or six months, however long it is, make it temporary. And then you can see how, it, how it works out because you'll know within a month or two, if it's going to work. I've heard, I can't remember, I think it was Dan Sullivan said something like procrastination is a signal that maybe you shouldn't be doing it and someone else should be. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. That, I mean, and I have a big procrastinator about everything. So, uh, another point, right? So we talk about another nugget. I hope I'm just giving good value here. But, you know, as, as lawyers, we often think we're the best at every job in our firm. And I love all my lawyer friends, but we are not the best at every job, you know? And, and we're pretty intentional about, you know, like, for example, with our, with our intake people, we hire people who are very empathic, right? For the people who are doing negotiations in my firm, the attorneys, like, I want people who are stone cold, right? And so we try and find that out and see, is this a good fit in this? And I find somebody oftentimes who's in the wrong department, I'll move them into another department and say, you know, this is a better fit for you. But when it was me doing everything, you know, I used to think I was an amazing negotiator. Now I've got some negotiators in my firm who negotiate circles around me. And, and I'm the guy, right? I'm, I'm Ward, right? I'm the Ward of the Ward Law Group. They think I want him to negotiate my case. Listen, if it's a monstrous case and you need somebody who doesn't care about how much money it is, yeah, that's, I'm fine. I, I can handle that. But on a day-to-day with an adjuster, man, like just knocking it out, I'm not going to be your best guy. So we got to get out of our headspace that we think we're the best at everything and get people who actually will be better than us in the right seats. 
This has been so helpful, so educational. How can people get in touch with you and what's next for Ward Law Group? So people can get in touch with me. My website is 855-DOLORE, D-O-L-O-R-5-5. And for those of you who are like, what does that mean? Dolor is the word pain in Spanish. So 855-DOLORE-55.com. That's my website. My email is <laughs> gward at gwardlaw.com. Right, gward at gwardlaw.com. What's next for us? I mean, growth, man. We had always planned on going outside of the state of Florida where there are Spanish speakers. My wife is extremely passionate about serving her people who tend to be immigrants and Spanish speakers because honestly, they get the worst deal when dealing with insurance companies, truly. So geographic expansion is probably next. We're doing all auto and slip and fall. Going to go to New York for sure. We, we already have an office lease and we're going to be rolling out in New York for sure. And then maybe New Jersey, maybe Texas, maybe New Mexico. I've got to look at it and see what it is. And I'm, I'm already admitted in Massachusetts and Maryland, so we may start doing some stuff there. But you know, where there's a need, but we're, we'll probably stay focused pretty closely on our Spanish roots because that's that's the clients we like to serve the most. And everybody in my office speaks Spanish. Well, I have two attorneys now who don't, but you know, I really want to stay close to you know my clients' roots. And by the way, we're hiring people in Nicaragua and offshore to help out too. We have back office support that is from Latin South America. So we're going even one step further by, you know, doing these VAs where we're hiring people offshore. And that's something that's pretty new to us, but we've, we've grown that pretty fast too. I will definitely tell you the mistakes I've made because, you know, I don't want anybody to have to go through some of the bad stuff I went through and I can give you some advice, but, but the truth is, is everybody is different. Let me say one thing and final that where I do see lawyers get into trouble. If you don't have your inner workings sorted out, and by that, I mean your faith. If you don't have your faith or your understanding of the world, and it doesn't have to be my faith, but if you don't know who you are, when the success comes, you know, the Bible talks about it as, you know, you'll be the, the house that was built on sand, not on rock. Figure out what you stand for. If you do get some success and you haven't done that, it's like the rock star thing. When you're going to burn out, you can hit drugs or alcohol or women or, you know, gambling, whatever it is. I believe the devil's got a lot of plans for us that if we're not ready to deal with that level of success, it's going to hit hard. So please take some time, look inside yourself, figure out why you're doing this. And hopefully you have a faith experience like I did, where like, I know why I'm doing this, but you definitely have to have your, your insides worked out because that your firm will be a representation of you. And what John Maxwell says, I'll finish with this, the law of the lid, like your organization only get as big as you as a person. And so if you got to be doing everything, you're going to be at 10 people. Thanks so much to Greg at Ward Law Group for everything he shared today. You already know what time it is. Let's hit those pinpoints. Pinpoint number one, saturate, saturate, saturate. You have to saturate a marketing channel to be memorable. When people need your services, multiple impressions and a ton of repetition will keep your brand top of mind. That is what builds a brand. There's something called what I call the tipping point, where if you don't buy a big enough advertising contract, you will not reach a certain saturation and you will not get calls at all. But you cross the tipping point, you know, and it may just be another 20 or 30%, but you cross the tipping point, then you're actually at critical mass, you can get cases. And pinpoint number two, build up that war chest. Have a stockpile of funds from past efforts will help you make tactical decisions instead of emotional ones. Look, we can't know what the future has in store, but to keep your foot on the gas and maintain, you need to have a financial bedrock. We had a 100 plus million dollar settlement recently. I brought another law firm as well. We got a war chest. We're ready to go. We'll take the case if we go to trial, if we have to go there, you know, 
But I see young lawyers sometimes, they try and get ahead of themselves or our egos get in the way and we make mistakes. So don't overextend yourself on that. And, and especially with advertising contracts, because you see you like, oh, if I just do what Greg is doing, I'm gonna get the same results. Well, we've been doing it for over 10 years now, but more importantly, like we're extremely tactical about what we're doing. Last but never least, pinpoint number three, go for geographic exclusivity. It is so powerful if you can control the distribution and keep competitors from moving in through top channels. Build those relationships with media advertisers to help gain advantage. But remember, if a vendor gives away exclusivity too freely, it might be a red flag. It could signal that they are turning over clients and not providing enough value. People always try to take our market share. But if I see there's a real threat, I'm gonna just saturate it and no one can come on and take over any of our media. And I also have exclusive relationships with a lot of the media we're doing now. And we pay a little bit more than that because we protect our space. But be careful because somebody will get a hit. They'll settle a case for, let's say, they get a $100,000 fee. They're like, we're gonna put all this into TV. Well, be careful. Like, start small. Like, everybody wants to come and be the big guy all of a sudden. I'm Chris Stryer. Thanks for listening to Personal Injury Mastermind. If you made it this far, it's time to pay the tax. No, I'm not talking about taking your cash like Big G. I'm asking you for a five-star review on Apple or Spotify. Leave me a review and I'll forever be grateful. If this is your first episode, welcome and thanks for hanging out. Come back for fresh interviews where you can hear from those making it rain. Catch you next time. I'm out.